We're going to get started. Let's start our time with, with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for um, this day, for this night. I pray that you would be with us during this time um, as we look into your word. Lord, I, your word says, blessed are those who hear and keep your commandments. And so, Lord, I'm asking that we would be able to be people who hear and listen to your word. Help us to hear your voice coming out of the pages of scripture. I pray that you would make our hearts receptive to your word. I ask that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would um, clear my mind of anything that ought not to be in there. And I just pray that you would um, help me to speak only what you would have me speak today. And I ask for your blessing on our time together. And I pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So if the law of God or the book of Deuteronomy or the commandment or the statutes and rules were all by itself in one book, we would open this book to the table of contents. And there we would find the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments or the Ten Words provide for the law of God both its foundation as well as its structural framework. All of the laws, everything that we're going to be studying for the rest of this year and into the, next, into the winter, all of those laws, statutes, and rules fit within the structural framework of the Ten Commandments. So we are about to turn the page of, away from the Ten Commandments where we've spent two weeks but even as we do so, even as we move away from that, we don't want to leave it behind. We want to bring it with us, bring those 10 words with us as we move forward into the book of Deuteronomy. So as we turn our imaginary page, we turn the page to discover what is known as the Shema. Deuteronomy 6 is the Shema, and it is one of the most familiar and most important passages in the Old Testament scripture. And the Shema gets to the very heart of the law. The Shema is Israel's creed and confession of faith. Even to this day, it is recited twice daily by faithful Jews. They will say the Shema during their morning and their evening prayers. So why is it called Shema? Well, Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. So every time you see the word hear, um, it was actually introduced to us back in Deuteronomy 5.1, hear, O Israel, when, when the law, when Moses was introducing the Ten Commandments to us, he introduced it by saying, hear, O Israel. And twice in chapter 6, we hear, hear, O Israel, that's Shema. So that's where it gets its name. The word actually literally means hear or listen. And we learned a couple of weeks ago that hearing is absolutely critical in the scripture. For we have a God who speaks. That is his way of communicating with us. He speaks and he calls his people to hear him. And we learned that hearing is not just hearing the sound of noises that are emanating in the room. It's not just hearing the voice. It's hearing to obey. Biblical hearing is hearing that leads to obedience. And that is what the Shema is, a call to hear that leads to obedience. 
But before we get started looking at this beautiful passage, I want us to pause for just a moment and think about something. The Shema was Jesus's personal creed and confession. He grew up on this. He would have recited this daily. This chapter formed him. It shaped his life and his ministry. He didn't just confess these words, but he believed them in his heart. He didn't just confess it with his mouth, but this command that we're looking at today was embodied perfectly in his life and in his ministry. So keeping that in our minds, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verse 1 says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, last week at the end of uh, the Ten Commandments, we saw the people of God say to God, No more. We can't take this anymore. We can't hear your voice anymore. It's a miracle that we have heard your voice and we're still alive. And so they say to Moses, go up into the mountain. You go. You go into the presence of the Lord. You hear what he has to say. You come back and you tell us and we will do everything that the Lord our God has commanded us. And so what Moses is giving us tonight or in this in this passage is partly what he heard from God when he went up into the mountain. And so he says, now this is the commandment that the Lord commanded me to teach you. What is this commandment? What is it? And we're going to be looking at that in a few minutes, but it's basically the commandment itself is one thing. Love God. Love the Lord your God. With all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength. But before we dive into what that means, I want us to look just a little bit for just a few minutes and notice a few things about this commandment that we can see in these um, first three verses. The commandment is that to love God is God's commandment. It's not man's. I know I say this often to you when I'm teaching, but this is God's word to his people, not man's word. And it's worth repeating often because the voice of the evil one perpetually rings in our ear saying, did God really say? And so on repeat in the scriptures, we're constantly being told, this is the command that the Lord gave me to give to you. So that we would remember and so that we would be able to fight against the temptation to doubt the word of God. This commandment that we are looking at today is from God. He is giving this to us. That's the first thing I want us to notice. The commandment also to to love him is that God defines for us what that means. What that's supposed to look like. He doesn't leave us to guess 
how it is we are to love him, which is awesome. Because I'm not quite that good. So I interact with my husband sometimes in a way where I have an expectation of him in my heart. I don't even often always know that I have this thought in my soul until I get upset. But I have an expectation that he's going to do something for me. And somehow when he neglects to do that thing, I'm upset because I think if he did it, it means he loves me. Clearly he doesn't love me because he has not done this thing. But my poor husband has no idea he's supposed to love me in this way because I've neglected to tell him. But God is not like me. He takes great pains to make clear to us what to define what it means for us to love him. He's very clear about that. And I wanted to bring that point out to you because in our current cultural context, the word love has been counterfeited and distorted. And if we are not in God's word, hearing from him how he desires to be loved, what this means to him, we will not love him rightly. We will love him according to our current cultural context. And that is a counterfeit love. The next thing I want us to notice is that this commandment is intended to be passed down from generation to generation. Um, we see that in this, this um, text that, that they're going to go into the land and they're to possess it, that they may fear the Lord, that you and your son and your son's sons will fear the Lord. We are intended to pass that down. We're going to look that, at that again in a few minutes. But that is, that is repeated throughout the commandment, to pass this down to your children and to your children's children. We also can observe just in these first three verses and in the chapter itself that the commandment that he is giving to us is intended to be obeyed. It's said at least seven times, just in chapter 6 alone. Verse 1 says that you may, not, that you may do them. Verse 2 tells us that you may fear the Lord your God by keeping all of his commands. Verse 3 says, be careful to do them. Verse 16, diligently keep the commandments. Verse 18, do what is right and good. Verse 24, do all these statutes. Verse 25, be careful to do all this commandment. These commandments have been given to the people of God that they may be obeyed. And the commandment? we observe is good because God is good. The word good is all over chapter six. I don't know if you saw that, noted that in your heart because God is a good God. He does good to his people and for his people and the commands themselves are good. We see echoes of a good land and good cities and do right and what is good. And the commandments are for your good always. It will be for righteousness for you. God's commands are good because he is good. And finally, my final observation just at the very beginning before we dive into the text is that obedience to the commands brings life. Verse 3 says that it may go well with you and that you will multiply greatly. Verse 18 says that it may go well with you. Verse 24, and speaking of obedience to the command, says it's for our good that he may preserve us alive. And, And so as we begin to look at the commandments, keeping in mind 
what God's intention was for these commandments in the lives of these, in his people. The Shema begins with a statement about God. Who it is that has commanded them, who it is that has called them into covenant. This statement that it begins with is a confession of faith about what they were to believe about God. And it opens up with this. Verse 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is a statement of truth about the God who has called them. And what we need to understand is that the love of God is rooted in an accurate knowledge of God, first and foremost. You cannot love what you do not know. Our hearts will not love what we do not know. It's why we are here studying the scriptures together. To know him, to know this God who has called us into relationship with him. But this knowledge of God is not simply meant to be an intellectual knowledge so that we can pass a Jeopardy quiz. But it is intended to lead our hearts to love for this God who has called us. For God has revealed himself to his people out of his love, and he reveals us into love. And how important is it that we confess truth about God? How important is it that our knowledge of God is rooted in truth as he has revealed himself? It is crucial because Romans chapter 1 teaches us that idolatry happens when when we exchange the truth about God for a lie. The minute we begin to worship God not in truth, we are worshiping a false God. We are fallen into idolatry. So it is so important for us to not just confess the truth, but believe the truth in our hearts. And this is what the Shema opens up with. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. This God, this Yahweh, this one who has redeemed you, this one who has called you, he is one God. They are confessing that God is one This would have been a shocking discovery for them, having grown up and known nothing but the polytheistic culture of Egypt. The entire world was saturated in the multiplicity of gods. They didn't know any country, any land that would have had one God. And here is this God, Yahweh, who's called them, and he's revealing himself to them. And he says, this is who I am. I am one God. He is exclusively the only God there is. He is one God. And he is God alone. He's not the first of many gods. He is God alone. So that means for Israel, as they're hearing this, they're beginning to to realize that all of these gods that they're surrounded with are really no gods at all when they confess that the God who had saved them is one God. He is exclusively their God. He is monotheistic. He is one God. And he is the only God. Now, Jesus confessed this. He confessed that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
every day of his life. But he also revealed to his people that he was God, that he himself is God. And so Jesus transforms this for us. This statement, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, has been transformed for us because of Jesus. Jesus opens up the mystery of the oneness, the unity of God, by teaching his followers that God, the one God, is also Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One of the greatest mysteries that we could ever try to wrap our minds around is the fact that God is one, but also three persons. But Jesus reveals that to us. He reveals that through his teaching and through his ministry to his disciples. He also transforms the statement just ever so slightly by this truth. That Paul teaches us in Romans. He tells us that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the Shema in the New Testament. When we say that the Lord our God, the Lord is one, we are saying and confessing that Jesus is Lord. He is The Lord our God, the Lord is one. So let's continue on. Following up on this confession of faith is the commandment, the great commandment, the commandment that summarized the entire law into one sentence. And here it is. Here is the summary, ladies, of the entire study right here. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This Lord who you have just confessed is the one that you ought to love, that you will love with all of your heart. This is the whole law summed up in one sentence. So what does it mean to love God with all of your heart, soul, and might? Is there something different about these three different Parts of ourselves. I think this is Moses' way of just saying, love God with everything that you are. Robert Jones, in the the book Pursuing Peace, um, says this about the heart. In scripture, the heart is the intellectual, moral, spiritual, and emotional seat and control center of the entire inner person. What rules, drives, and controls us. It includes all of our beliefs, our motives, desires, emotions, affections, feelings, memories, will, intentions, and more, especially in relationship to God. If God has my heart, he has all of me. If God has my heart, he has all of me. The commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of you, all of who you are, all of your dreams and your emotions and your affections and your feelings and your will and your desires and your intentions. All of who you are is to love and obey God. Being consumed with love for God. 
is what this first commandment is about. Now, I got to tell you, I just love to think about Jesus in light of this verse. Because there is no greater, no better person to think about who has done this so perfectly and so beautifully. Jesus was consumed with love for God. He was consumed. Not only did he, he confess this love for him with his mouth, but his whole life radiated it. We can see it in the way that he spoke about God, his father. We can see it in the way that he was consumed with doing only his father's will. How many times when we read through the Gospels do we hear him say, it is not the time of my father. It is not my father's will. I will my, only my father can direct me. I do only what my father tells me to do. He was consumed with doing his father's will. We could see it in the way that he loved and served and ministered to the people that were around him, to his disciples. And we can see this love for God as he suffered and bled and died on his cross. There is no one who more embodied this perfectly than our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus also taught his disciples what it meant for his followers to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Once again, we see Jesus take this commandment, bringing it forward into the new covenant, transforming it just a bit with his personhood. And he teaches them to love God exclusively is to love God. Him, to love the Lord our God with all heart, our heart, soul, mind, and strength is to love Jesus for he is God. And he speaks of this exclusivity when he says to the disciples, if anyone is to come to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, we know Jesus is full of love, and he is not calling his followers to hate their family members. He's speaking in hyperbole to get our attention so that we would know that the love that we have for him, the love that we have for God, is to be so all-consuming and so exclusive and so much that our love for our family members will pale in comparison to that. It will even look like hatred in comparison to the love that we would have for God. That is what Jesus is calling his disciples to. He continues to instruct his disciples about how to love God in John 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And verse 21 says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So we begin to learn and understand how God defines what it means to love him. It means to hear him. It means to listen to him. It means to obey him. That is how we express our love to God, to him. To love God then, back here in Deuteronomy, is to walk in obedience to the law of God. To love God is today is to love Jesus, who is God, and to walk in obedience to his law, 
which is the very law of God, fulfilled and transformed in his person. It is to obey his word, to listen to his teaching, to listen to his word, which is why I believe the very next sentence following this great command to love God is about loving God's word. Look what it says next. It says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. To love God is to love his word because his word comes from the God that you love. It is to have it on your heart. Scripture is filled with passages that, that speak to this. Let me just read a handful of them for you. Deuteronomy eleven eighteen says, You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. Deuteronomy 32, 46. Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Proverbs 7.1, my son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Luke 8.15, Jesus said in the parable of the soils in speaking about the good soil, he said they are those who hearing the word hold to it, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. And then finally, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. So how does this happen? How do we lay God's word on our hearts, on their, how did this happen for them? I don't know that the original audience each had their own copy of the law in their tents. I don't think they did. So how was it that they were being called to lay God's word on their hearts if they didn't have a copy of the word, of the law? Well, they would hear the law spoken to them from Moses or from some of the leaders, maybe the priests. And what they would do is they would repeat it. They would memorize it. They would say it back and forth to one another, and they would repeat it enough so that eventually it got into their hearts. We actually see that example in the passage that we're looking at. But what about us today? Everyone in this room has their own copy of the very word of God. Are we laying it on our hearts Are we actively pursuing memorization and repetition of God's word so that it so saturates our soul and our hearts that when we are squeezed, it's the word of God that is squeezed out of us? To have God's word on your heart is to be so saturated in scripture that that's what's going to come out of your mouth. The order of these verses is so important. Know God. That's the foundation. You can't, and nothing else matters if you don't know him. Confess him. Love him. Love his word. All of this is first. 
And then, and only then, can you talk and teach his word and about him. We do talk about what we love, do we not? I'm pretty sure we do. Listen to the conversations. We get excited and we talk about the very things that we love. If we find a new mascara that is the most amazing mascara that we have ever found, we talk about that to every woman we know. Or cleanser that makes us lose 20 years off of our life. We're going to tell everybody. We talk about what we love. And so if we love God with all of our hearts and his word is saturating our hearts, that's what's going to come out. Because we're going to talk about what we love. And that's the next thing in this commandment. Verse 7 says, you shall teach them. Now the NASB literally reads, and you shall repeat them diligently. So that word teach means to repeat. Say it over, catechize this information, this truth about God to your children. You shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The Old Testament scriptures and promises were intended for Abraham and for his offspring. And in order for that to be so, they needed to pass that down to the generations. They needed to teach about God to the next generation, passing down the truths, the blessings, the promises, and then the commandments to each generation. This is primarily the responsibility of the parents. It is primarily that responsibility that God has given to the parents to do this to the children. And now we see and we understand why God put in the Ten Words and in the Ten Commandments for children to honor their father and mother. Because their father and mother were teaching them the commandments of God. And they were to be receptive to that. And they would learn to obey their parents... Therefore, learning to obey God. So the parents' primary responsibility is to teach. The children's primary responsibility is to be teachable, to learn and to listen and to obey. So teach and talk about God's word as you go about your day. This is not just something that you do in the morning or at a certain specific time of day, or it's not something that is done just in Sunday school on a Sunday morning for like an hour. God is showing us that this teaching is happening all the time, all day long, every day, as you get up in the morning, as you lay down at night, when you're at the dinner table, when you're in your car, when you're at the grocery store. There is no moment in time that you cannot be teaching and discipling your children in the truths of God's word. He goes on to say that they are to be bound as frontlets. These frontlets are what we call phylacteries. They're small boxes. They were literal boxes that had scripture in it that they would bind to their heads. And they would wear them around. And I think that if you would go to an Orthodox Jewish area, you might still see 
men obeying this commandment in this way, to literally bind to themselves God's word. Is that what God means here? I don't know that that he meant for them to walk around with boxes on their heads. (laughs) But I do think what he did intend, and this is from Dr. Miles Van Pelt, Moses desires that God's word should be bound to the hearts of each Israelite just like bracelets and headbands are bound to their owners. They're out in the open, in plain view, never to be forgotten or neglected. The point is, is the word of God ever before you? It's not necessarily that we wear them or post them all on our walls, although I will be honest with you, I do that. I don't technically wear them, but I post them to remind me. In my office, I have above my window, lift up your eyes, taped. Because I need to be reminded all the time to lift my eyes off of my circumstances, to lift my eyes off of how I'm feeling in the moment, to lift my eyes off of my troubles and my discouragements and my failures and lift my eyes to what God is doing and what God has said and what God has promised and what I know to be true, even though I can't see it. So I think it's appropriate to put it in a visible way before our eyes. But the point is that it's ever before us. They're bound to us. They're not forgotten. They're not being neglected. We're talking about them. We're teaching them. We're repeating them. We're memorizing them. The point is, God and his word are to be at the very center of our lives, the very center of his people. It's an all-consuming fire that burns in our hearts. And again, I just can't help but think of Jesus. As we study the law of God in Deuteronomy, the more I... The more I study it, the more I see it and remember it coming out of Jesus' mouth. Jesus himself had God's law on his heart. He was saturated in the scripture. He quoted scripture all the time. He quoted it in his battle against Satan and the temptations in the wilderness. He quoted scripture accurately and rightly against the Pharisees and their misinterpretations of scripture. Jesus quoted it in his teaching. You hear the law of Deuteronomy woven throughout all of Jesus' teaching. And we hear him on the cross. In his suffering on the cross, what comes out of his mouth? Scripture. The Psalms. When Jesus was squeezed, Scripture came out of his mouth. Jesus also lived out the command to teach and to talk about the law or the word of God. He broadens this for us today in that he doesn't exclude our families. He still calls parents to teach their children, but he broadens it to include the family of God. I believe what we see in the Shema is a fundamental pattern for what it looks like to to make disciples. This is discipleship. Now, our children are our first and primary disciples, 
but it is broadened to the church of God. And as you reflect just for a moment on Jesus's discipleship and how he discipled the 12 and the the others that followed him, what was he doing? How did he do that? He did it by the way, as he walked and as he talked, as he rose and as he lay down, as he sat to eat, wherever he went, Jesus was talking, reciting, teaching the scriptures, and he brings the Shema forward into the New Testament and gives us the pattern and shows us the pattern of what it looks like to disciple one another. We're all called to be disciples and to disciple others, and this is the pattern that we can do it in. It doesn't have to necessarily be a class, although it can be, but it's not going to stop with a class. It goes on and on for all of our lives. We're always doing this. When we have people over for dinner, we can be in discipling relationships. We can be talking about the truths about God, who he is and his promises. This fundamentally is how we are called to disciple. Are you being discipled and are you discipling as you go? Is your talk filled with God's word? All of our lives are to be consumed with God and his word, loving him and obeying him. But Moses goes on to warn us of two things that can distract us from being consumed by him. Let's look at verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Look at the goodness of God. This reminds me of Genesis 1. When we studied Genesis 1 and we talked about how God created the heavens and the earth and he didn't just put a handful of stars in the sky, he filled the skies with, with lights and with stars. And when he created the land, sea, he didn't just put a handful of sea creatures in there, he filled the waters with creatures. And when he created the land, he filled the land with different kinds of animals and he filled the skies with different kinds of birds. And in Genesis, we saw that God is a God that is a generous God. He is overflowing with generosity. And as we look at this passage, look at what he's doing for the people, for his people. He's giving them this land. It was called a land full of milk and honey. That is, that is hearkening us back to Eden. He's offering them Eden. And he's saying that he's giving them these great and good cities and they did not build them because God gave it to them. He's giving them houses that are filled with good things. They did not fill it. God filled it. He's giving them cisterns so they could drink. He's giving them vineyards and trees and they didn't have to plant them. And he's giving them food and filling them up. This is the goodness of the God who they are swearing their allegiance to. But the problem can be is that when God has given all of these good and bountiful gifts, we have the tendency to forget the giver of the gifts. We get so 
consumed with the houses and with the good things that the house is filled with. And we get consumed with our vineyards and our olive trees and the fact that we eat and are full. We get consumed with the blessings that God has given us out of the goodness and abundance of his heart. And we forget God. I think we can relate to this. We're no different than Israel. And so there's a warning in the scripture to take care when times are good to not forget God, to not be so distracted and so consumed with your things that you begin to serve the things. Because that's what happens. When we become consumed with what we have, with our families, with our children, these good gifts of God, we begin to get nervous that we might lose these good things. And then we start to compromise and we don't trust in God and we fear and we tried so hard to hold on to things that we can't hold on to. And we try so hard to control things that we cannot control. And what are we not consumed with anymore? We're not consumed with God. Verse 13 says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. By his name you shall swear. He's speaking of, of an oath of allegiance to God. He is the one that, that you ought to be consumed with. He is the one. Remember, he, God, is not like Pharaoh in Egypt who enslaved people who took them and beat them and who pressed them. God is the one who freed them from that house of slavery, brought them into his house where the invitation was open to feast at his table. It is to this good and gracious and generous God that they had been brought. It was this good and gracious and generous God that they were to fear, serve, and swear their allegiance. He goes on in verse 14, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. So God is calling them, reminding them that it is him that they're called to serve and that he is a jealous God. But I want to say that even in that, even in the fact that God is a jealous God, his jealousy is for his people. It is for his people. We need to understand that when God created us, he created us to flourish on him. We thrive in relationship with him and flourish in relationship with him. For he is good. He is the one we were created for and to. So his jealousy for us is actually a jealousy motivated by his love for us and his desire for our flourishing. And when we go after these other gods and we pursue other gods and we are consumed by our things, we are entering once again into the house of slavery. And he is offering freedom. So that is the first warning that we get in this passage, that in times of plenty, we can be tempted to forget God. 
But we can also, we have a second warning in verse 16. We can also forget God in times of testing. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. So two things that draw us away are plenty and lack. Plenty and lack, the two extremes, but both can be snares to us, keeping us from loving God. So what happened at Massa? The people were thirsty. They were in the great and terrifying wilderness. And there was no water, and they were afraid they were going to die, and they became angry and embittered against Moses and ultimately against God. And they complained against him, and they sought to even destroy and kill Moses, God's prophet, because they had no water. They were putting God to the test. They did not believe that God would provide for them, even though he had always provided for them. In fact, the passage in our Bibles that comes right before the story of Massa is the passage that talks about the manna from heaven. God had just provided miraculously sweet manna from heaven, and the next page, they're bitterly complaining against God because they're thirsty and they're sure that God hates them and will not provide for them. Psalm 95, 8 remembers this moment saying this, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Moriah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. To put to the test is to experience and see the goodness of God and then turn around and not believe him not believe that he will provide and supply your needs. It is to grumble and complain against him in your lack or in your need, and it is, not, it is to not trust him in your wilderness. And I think, once again, if we're honest, we can relate to this. This is a temptation and a snare for all of us because both of these things can affect our relationship with God. And God, through Moses, reminds us of what to do, how to fight these temptations. We are called back to the word, called back to knowing God, to confessing him, to loving him, to loving his word, to saturating ourselves in his word, putting it on our hearts. And then we circle back to walking diligently according to his commandments. Look at verse 17. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all of your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. Hear the goodness of God. Do what is right and good, for his commandments are good. He is giving you a good land. He's giving you this good land by thrusting out your enemies, just as he has promised. He is faithful. He is good. We circle back to reminding ourselves of who it is that has saved us or redeemed us or called us who it is that we are in covenant relationship with. It is God. This is the God who we are being called to obey. And then it continues on. 
Verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. So when their son, when your child comes to you and says, why do we have to do this? What is, what is the response of the parent? Pointing them to God. Do you notice that? We do the commandments because of what God has done. We do the commandments because the commandments are rooted in the love of God for us. It was God who made these commandments, but it was God who first freed us out of slavery. He reminds them of their redemption as the motive for them to obey. It is their redemption. It's what God has done for for them that is the motive, is the why behind their obedience. And I love verse 23. It says, he brought us out. He brought us out from there. From where? From the house of slavery. Where did he bring us in? He, bring, he brings us into the land that he swore to give to his fathers. But ultimately, he brought them out to bring them into his presence. It is out of slavery into the presence of God. That is the ultimate promised land for the people. It wasn't a geographical location necessarily. It was being brought out and brought in to the presence of God to feast at his table. Verse 24 concludes with this. And the Lord God commanded us to do all these statutes, all of them, all of them, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Do all these statutes. Fear the Lord our God. It's for your good always so that you may be preserved alive. Be careful to do all of his commandments. So, according to that, Perfect obedience all the days of our lives to the law brings eternal life. Flourishing, righteousness, it is why God commanded it. So how's that working out for everybody in the room? How's that going for you? The doing all the statutes, all the days of all of your lives. How's that working out? Earned eternal life yet? Perfect obedience all the time, every day. That's what it says. God put that word in there. And he made this commandment. And he knew full well that not one of us could do it. Full well. He wasn't putting this commandment down on paper saying, Oh, I hope they can do this. Maybe there'll be one. He knew full well that we could not live up to his perfect law and standard. And that's why we need a savior. 
This is the purpose of Deuteronomy and the law to help us see that we are hopeless without God. God set the perfect standard, but God also made it possible for us to have eternal life because God sent his one and only son and his one and only son Jesus came willingly and he did all these statutes perfectly all the days of his life. That's a big deal. I mean, that's huge. If you meditate on the fact that Jesus walked on this earth for 33 years, just like we do, got tired, just like we do, got sick, just like we do, and never once broke one single command, that's spectacular. Not in his thoughts, not in his heart. He perfectly did all of these statutes. And he did that, that he might preserve us alive. His perfect obedience will be our righteousness. Because he was careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God. We are given his righteousness when we put our faith and trust in him when we confess him as lord and we believe that god has raised him from the dead and we seek to obey his commandments when we confess him as lord by faith and put our trust in him This is ours. We are preserved alive and we will have righteousness. We find the forgiveness of sins. And then something really strange can happen. Really strange, actually. When you see Jesus in your place, living out the law for you and taking on your punishment, something begins to happen in your heart if you can see truly what is happening and you truly believe by faith in what he's done. Something happens in your heart. Love begins to grow for God. When we see the gospel, when we see what God has done for us in his son, we begin to love him. And the more we see his love for us and his son on the cross, our love for him begins to grow. And the more our love for him begins to grow, the more we seek to know him through his word and lay his word on our hearts, And the more we know him through his word, the more we desire to walk in obedience to him. And the more we walk in obedience to him, the more we want to know him and love him. And the more we want to know and love him, the more we love his word and seek him in his word and walk in obedience to his word. And do you get the idea here? All of a sudden, because of what Jesus has done, we have love for God. And we desire to know him. And we desire to obey him when that wasn't there before. And that love will continue to grow if we continue to persevere. Seeking, remembering, reminding ourselves of Jesus. 
seeking him in his word, until that day when we are finally rid of the sinful body and we will see him face to face and then we will be like him because we will see him as he is. We will be just like Jesus. So ladies, love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength because he has first loved you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that he is God, that he is the way to eternal life with you. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we have in him. We thank you for the promise of eternal life. We thank you that you have brought us out of sin and into your presence. And I pray that you would be with each one of us, that we would grow in our love for you, that we would lay your word on our hearts, that we would so saturate our lives with your word and we would be so consumed with love for you that it would be what oozes out of us at all times. I pray that your spirit would do that work in us and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.